Once again, this time it's Hong Kong. We're going to travel far, far away into the distant land. But fear not, our listeners. We also have a guest to help us on the journey. Mr. Mitch Tum, how are you? Hello. Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch is my friend from Couchsurfing. We just discussed this before we started recording. As Some people might know I have been an avid user of Couchsurfing platform before, so this is a place where you can kind of meet the people from different cultures from all around the world. They come to your place to kind of have this natural cultural exchange, and this happened with me and Mitch in Finland, and then he also came to see me in Poland. So long story short, now we're here recording, and yeah, and also naturally we have my Ever reliable co-host, Mr. Henrik. How are you? I would hazard a guess I'm better off than our guest here today. Since I, I'm I'm not the one risking my sesame credit by appearing on this podcast. Mm. So Mitch, tell us all about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I live in Hong Kong. I, I was born and raised in Hong Kong and then I um, currently I work for the in the arts industry, uh, arts management uh, scene in Hong Kong. So mm-hmm. basically I'm a 100% local Hong Kong people. And I live in the um, suburban side in Hong Kong. So that's a little bit unlike most of the people because I'm living in a village house that is big and I'm not living in those flats that is super small like as projected while in the internet or movies like you will see in hong kong (laughs) yeah so you have to travel a little bit to the kind of the big city center yes oh and one remarks like i me myself uh, being a local hong kong i also feel like the food in hong kong is very nice (laughs) i mean like we have You know Chinese food, and then we have Japanese and Western food, and they all taste very nice. So yeah, I love eating. <laughs> yeah, Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, and I read something that you prefer to have very fresh food, so everything is fresh when you go to the restaurants, and that's yeah. nice. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, Mitch is from Hong Kong. I'm from Finland, and Henrik is from Finland, obviously. Just for people who have never listened to this podcast before. And I myself, I studied media, so I'm media assistant by title. Henrik is going to be the master of arts. Well, yeah, it always sounds very fancy. Next to master of universe. A lot of high potential there as a master of arts. Of course, he's going to study something very specific in the area of, you know, movie making, basically, right? Mm. Well, I'm I'm still a bit on a fence on there. Okay. Are you going to be an art painter, perhaps? Hopefully not. Like that, that would be almost too much art for me. <laughs> But okay. During the last year now, I have dabbled in video game making. I've taken a fancy on that. Okay, Mr. Coder. 
Mr. Black Hat. <laughs> so, this cast is about movies in general, in the sense that we go to every kind of genre we've watched. <laughs> Are we going to do this again, Henrik? Yes, we have watched movies from every genre except one and yes we are going to get there at some point <laughs> do you want to disclose this genre to our guest i i i'm guessing you are talking about japanese animation also known <laughs> as hentai well let's just go with that <laughs> so so you have a certain musical talent mitch so you're traveling around the world related to music and opera i hear yeah, I actually study music uh, back in the university, and now I'm working in a performing arts company, and I sort of like taking care of some orchestra, and well, this year I also do some percussion, ensemble, and even pipe organ um, related projects and concerts. So yeah, I'm quite into the music scene, but majority the classical music. Any travel plans for the future? Um, not travel, but study plan. I wish I can go to Holland, the Netherlands, or Zurich for a master study um, in the upcoming year. So that's uh, this September. I will start school this September. Perfect. <laughs> so maybe it's good to talk about Hong Kong with our listeners a little bit because, you know, you have to kind of I think understand a little bit of, about the region before we get to the actual subject here, which is the movie. Mm-hmm. But Hong Kong, some basic statistics. I see that it has like 7.4 million people of various nationalities, but I think it's like 92% at least just like Hong Kongese people or Chinese people in that area. Mm-hmm. And so the language differentiation here. So. Mandarin is dominant in the mainland, but Cantonese is more spoken in this, well, in Hong Kong and in the nearby regions, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. All right. And this Hong Kong region has like the longest or fourth longest somewhere in that ballpark, like the one of the longest life expectancies in the world. Oh, I have no idea about this. <laughs> yeah. Something interesting that I find. of people travel by public transportation. That's very friendly for the environment, I guess. (laughs) Just because the city is so small and packed in itself, so you just don't need a car. (laughs) Yeah, so it's practically useless to go with the car anyway, right? Yeah. Okay. And the name Hong Kong originates, I suppose, from something that is, I don't know if this is Cantonese or something. Oh yeah, I can add a little bit because in yeah. Chinese, Hong Kong, so the Hong is uh, meaning smells good, and then okay. Kong is a harbor. So that's a a harbor. It smells good, <laughs> literally. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, but... like, because we are like, uh, why having a that's a fishing village uh, oh, yeah. in class. So I feel like the smelling good maybe you know, have some connection with village, uh, not like fishing village. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And there's still some British people around there, but I don't know if the, if that's a huge part of the population. This is, of course, for our listeners originating from the colonial times when Britain gained control of the Hong Kong area. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of UK people there, 
I guess. Well, I can tell, like, there's a bunch of foreigners in Hong Kong, expats in Hong Kong. I think the number compared to other Asia cities is quite high, the rate. And they're, I think, not majority, but still a bunch of people are British. But the expats are quite, you know, various, like American, German, and other white peoples, and also other nationalities and races, like Black. Also, we have lots of people. So basically, we're a very multicultural city. Mm. Do you also kind of follow some kind of more traditional, perhaps more Chinese family values, like including appreciating the family, family honor? Is there that kind of thing going on? Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. (laughs) Definitely, because we are, well, like me, I'm a local. We did follow the we are Chinese and we have a very deep Chinese culture. Like we celebrate the lunar Chinese New Year and then also how we think um how we like we, we are we are Chinese having the cultural values. But the difference is because we are colonized by the British. So at some point like the education or how we see things is quite westernized. So we are basically like having a very fundamentally Chinese, but we also have the visions of westernized vision. I think that's why Hong Kong people is a slight different from the you know mainland Chinese people. For example, we have the very complete or westernized legal system, the education systems, and I think it's the mm. speak of freedom, like the news systems, I mean like news reports or internet access we can the same as the western world so it is because of this kind of software we are upgraded as not upgraded but you know synchronized with the western world so we are chinese based but we still we also can access to the western world i mean vision or think thoughts yeah yeah that's the idea i get as well Mm -hmm. well since you mentioned the whole colonialization again, maybe we should talk about that, like how that mm-hmm. happened. At least it was interesting for me to read about it. So it started with the first Opium War in 1839. Mm. And uh, yeah, this was the first of two Opium Wars. The Opium Wars started because China saw the bad effects of opium on its citizens. And then they just full on completely immediately decided to ban the opium and this made the uk people be in a lot of trouble there was like malnourishment problems due to this because it was just so sudden and this was the biggest problem apparently with the uk people so they decided that they need to wage a war and the result the agreement that they did with the chinese government at the time Qing Mm. dynasty china they did this deal and this included Hong Kong and they gained control of this harbor area. And there was also the New Territories area that was controlled for 99 years, but then the kind of leash ended. And now since 97, it's back with the Chinese control. Am I correct? Mm, yeah. And then I can, on top of that, at like Hong Kong, I feel like one of the reasons why Hong Kong is selected is because of the geographically. 
because、mm. um, we we have the Victoria Harbour. What I read from my secondary school is called Victoria Harbour. We have this harbour is very deep water, so like the big cargo ship can access to the harbour, and it makes the transportation very accessible. And because of the location, it is like you know in the middle point of the south middle section of China. So basically, it is because of this criteria from geographically. So Hong Kong is therefore selected to. I mean, like <laughs> British, therefore select China,、uh, Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, and it's my understanding as well that when they were writing deals again in the recent times. They had this one clause that Hong Kong, the island of Hong Kong, can continue as a self-controlling area for the next fifty years. Ah,、uh, okay. And China ag- agreed to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually makes Hong Kong different, and also bring the trouble or not trouble, but the uncertain situation now in Hong Kong when the colonization end. On the 1997, so the agreement said that Hong Kong can have the self-control for 50 years, but we are still we sort of like a special region. So we our nationality is still Chinese, but、uh, we call it like one country and two system. Right. So China have their own system, and Hong Kong we have the own system built. Quite basically, following the British law. Yeah. So we have our own government authorities. Yeah. So whereas the new territories, the kind of extended Hong Kong area, was given to the full control of China,、mm-hmm. the Hong Kong Island area is still in this autonomy section. But yeah, as I said, this was negotiated so in '97 that. Fifty years from ninety-seven, the Hong Kong island would still have its autonomy. So, if I'm getting that correct now, then the autonomy would de facto end in twenty forty-seven. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so that means, like after two o four seven, Hong Kong will solely become part of China. So we will become the same city as other Chinese city. And I believe people are. Very conflicted with that. Yeah, we are very reluctant to become because of quite main concern is because of the the uncertain Chinese politics situation now. Yeah, indeed. Bitch, <laughs> I love you. You know. Oh, <laughs> just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> resolved. Resolved. <laughs> Some love for Mitch. Happening. Yes. <laughs> okay. Ah,、uh, I want to. I want to add. Like, well, just because, like, we all know, like, two o four seven, like, Hong Kong will become part of the China, and so we somehow, and everyone in Hong Kong, we know that, like, once we will become a China city, a lots of we call it like Westernized things will be disappear. For example, the right of speech. So now we can say like, oh, I don't like China. But once we have become part of China, that causes a legal problem. So you will be caught by the cop because you say you don't love your country. So this is point number one, and that's super important to us Hong Kong、yeah. people because we can speak whatever we want, and 
a city itself means like you can you know include different voices. How do you think it will end up being? Like, will it be a, like a mass emigration um, to the UK, perhaps, or Europe, or people just try mm-hmm. to change China from inside? Mm-hmm. I know, like Hong Kong people, a part of people, like if they have the ability to go to Canada or UK, they have already did it. Like they have already yeah. gone. But for me myself, well, I feel like I'm not going to do that just because the change of the political things. Because okay. at some point, I feel like, well, Hong Kong itself is a very international city. So what I foresee, like how China will treat Hong Kong, will I mean, like we will still be a very mm. like a popping star in China, and just like you can take a look of Shanghai. I have no problem living in Shanghai. I feel like that is a very international city. A lot of things happening yeah. there. Of course, the freedom of speech we have just said will be limited. But still, because it is an international city, the, the government still need to, you know, take care of the expect and you know how other countries or the the whole world treat of this city. So. I feel like yes, at some point, the freedom of speech, or even the legal system, or the educational system, our own currency, we have own Hong Kong dollars, and mm-hmm. I know like because we have a very complete legal system. So people from around the world they trust our legal system, our currency system. So the business and finance is going quite well here in Hong Kong. Yeah, I know that it is quite surprised like. Because our government every year we have a lot, a lot of lots of profits left. So I feel like this is quite weird compared to other countries. Because no city they are like earning more or more and more money. But we Hong Kong, our government, because you know, like Hong Kong is quite a finance-based city. Yeah. So majority of people they are doing well in business and finance. So the government indeed have saved up lots of money. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like uh, the region will still have kind of some of its definitely will keep it some of its uniqueness, even though it mm-hmm. will be then under China because it it has already established kind of its own nature for the like what 156 years or so and beyond. So yeah. you know what can they do about it? <laughs> Not much. Yeah. But you know, like for me, like I can imagine, like now I'm holding a Hong Kong passport. Yeah, I mean Hong Kong compared to China, the difference is how the world treats. Because for Hong Kong, I feel like people will trust more trust in Hong Kong and less trust in China. Exactly. Yeah. So that is the only worrying things I'm worried. It's all super interesting, but have to move on to the film industry of Hong Kong. So okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, just going to fly through the history in some way. So yep, for a long time, Hong Kong was making movies without sound or speech, and in some cases, it was then overdubbed in editing phase where they added some of the dialogue. And in many cases, it wasn't even the actor that was giving the speech; it was somebody else because the actor was too busy. To put his own speech into the movie, or whatever the case was, then in the 70s and 80s was kind of like the very hot phase of Hong Kongese cinema. There was a lot of uh, international successes, 
And so the production of the films just exploded. There were hundreds of movies coming out each year. Then there was the Jackie Chan movies, of course, which were internationally very famous. But I can tell you, Jackie Chan is not doing too well in martial arts. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like yes. <laughs> I feel like Bruce Lee is a more iconic figure from Hong Kong. You know Bruce Lee? Also the martial arts. Picture. Yeah, I just saw the like. Was it yeah. like a golden statue that you also have in yeah. the Fort Bruce Lee? Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, there was this boom period, and then in the early '90s, something went terribly wrong for many, many reasons. There was a lack of funding for films. There was a lot of rampant piracy, etc., etc. But it has kind of survived it now. You know, there's like 50 plus movies coming out every year, right? So it's something. But it's far from the like, glory days. But you could argue that it kind of went crazy. There was like overproduction of films, and there was this uh, softcore erotica genre that was a very famous and uh, liked genre in the 70s. In fact, and one of the famous movies that are kind of softcore erotica is Naked Killer from 1992. Then there was the horrible SARS virus in 2003, and this also caused problems in the cinema, basically. Nobody was going to the cinema at some point. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this phase, but yeah, it was hurting the industry a lot. Mm-hmm. And in 2002, probably even Henrik has seen this because I have also seen it. The Eye, uh, the horror movie that was kind of modeled after Japanese horror films of the time and made a lot of international headlines. And then there is uh, movies that probably would not be made in mainland, like. Permanent residence and city without baseball. So LGBT-related films. All right, Henrik, do you have something for us about Wong Kar Wai, our director of the night? Only, only my overblowing fanboyism. <laughs> I myself, I have seen two of his other movies. In fact, oh, one of them is 2046, and the other one. Is in the mood for love. In the mood for love. That's what I've seen. Great uh. movies, both of them. And he directed tonight's movie, which is uh, Chungking Express, which was made in '94. Also, very internationally seen movie thanks to Quentin Tarantino, which he actually brought this movie to cinemas in the U.S. and the rest of the world because he made a deal with Miramax to distribute this film. Because he liked it so 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 much, and here we are discussing about this film. It also caught my eye because of the international attention, and it's coming from a director that is deemed as a very important director in the let's say modern Hong Kongi cinema. So, but yeah, what happens in Chungking Express, Henrik? Not that much. In the end, to be completely honest, yeah, yeah, with chunking, it's kind of the case where it's not so much a film in a sense that it tries to tell you this big, complex, ever-evolving story, like you know your typical movie would go. Instead, it kind of a, tries to visualize and show you a feeling by using the art form of cinema. Yeah, the mood and the atmosphere. I would say that's what this movie is all made of. So 
Wong Kar Wai was working on another film around this movie's making. Ashes of Time Redux. And he was having a few months break from producing that film. Yeah. Or the, like the post-production phase. And then he was finally able to get some time together. I believe this movie, Chunking Express, was shot only in 23 days, if I'm not entirely losing my brain cells in this podcast. And Whoa, <laughs> that's surprising. Yeah, and this is like a collection or like a long marinated idea coming from his brain and he finally wanted to do this film because he had the time and basically it's just two separate stories that kind of do not come to any kind of conclusion with chunking the case was that Karwai was he was making ashes of time and he had kind of a hit this artistic dead end where he had given so much of himself to the project that he no longer could have a clear eye on what he was doing and actually chunking was meant to be simply this little detour where he can do something completely outside of assets of time as a project and just you know was again flex his artistic muscle so to speak and chunking was finished very quickly Fonkar Wai did kind of find his ambitions. He kind of found what he, once again, what he was trying to do with Assets of Time. And he once again did manage to get a, a clear view of what he was actually shooting with Assets of Time. And so in that sense, Chunking did what it was meant to do. And well, the next film that one guy brought out was the Assets of Time, Fallen Angels. At first, it was meant to be as a third storyline in Chunking, but Wong Kar Wai in production chose to actually leave that storyline out of Chunking and instead of simply made it as a standalone film. Yeah, he thought that Chunking would be too long if he would include the third one. Perhaps it could be argued that, well, Quentin Tarantino also brought this point up that he could see like parallels between his Pulp Fiction and this film in the sense that they have both like separate stories in a way and that might have also caught his eye. Henrik, a little bit quick about the whole cast and crew. We have uh, Bridget Lynn. This is the woman in the blonde wig in the first story. She's apparently a Chinese superstar. Maybe Mitch knows something about her. Is it uh, Chin Xialin or something like this? The actor with the sunglasses in the first story. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you know, like when I watched the movie, I thought that's the same actress as the second episode story, but and then oh. I find out it is not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know that uh, actress, but I know she is a very local trained actress, and then very successfully become an international star. Yes. Then we have Takeshi Kaneshiro. Uh, this is like a half Japanese, half Taiwan actor. Yes, yes, yes. From the first story, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, very, like, uh, he has built a career, I guess, with his good boyish looks. And mm -hmm. he's there. <laughs> and then in the second story, we have this other cop. Maybe you have to help me with the pronunciation. So it's Leon Chiu Wai. <laughs> Leon Chiu Wai, yes. Yeah. 
Mr. Short Tony, he has starred in several films by Wong Kar Wai. Maybe Henrik knows this as well. Uh, yeah, he is one of Kar Wai's regular actors. Kind of these big names that Kar Wai likes to attach as the male lead in most of his movies. Yeah. He plays a lead here. He's also the main star in The Mood for Love and its sequel, The 2046, and later on, even in The Grandmaster, which is the latest long feature from Karwai. And outside of that, he, of course, has also made quite the name for himself for appearing in the Infernal Affairs movie lineup. And then we have Fai Wong, if I pronounce that at all correctly. Fei Wong. Fei Wong. Fei Wong, thank you. Okay. Yeah. And she is kind of like the superstar of this film. She has garnered a lot of fame for this film and her portrayal. And she did won a, some kind of a film prize for this role. And she is doing a great job. Personally, I'm not sure what all the extreme appeal is about her. But yeah. She does a stellar job. No problem with that. Yeah, with Faye, you kind of have to take into the account that originally she is a singer, a pop okay. star. So she had kind of that fame already before, you know, transitioning into film. And does Mitch like her music? Yeah, I think she is having a super nice character, very stylish girl. She's that kind of cool girl, but not that kind of, like, happy smile girl. And she sings well. Okay. So, dear listeners, unfortunately, Mitch will have to leave us for a moment, but uh, he'll be back in a couple of moments. Bye for now. Yeah, we start with this slow-motion images of this mysterious blondie woman who, apparently, as we will later find out, is involved in the drug underworld. But... We have a lot of beautiful shots of Hong Kong. The first story is basically shot in Chungking Mansions. So Chungking Mansions, it's kind of a famous building in Hong Kong. And it contains the largest number of guest houses in Hong Kong. Nothing fancy. It's like a backpacker's legendary location where they would hang out. It's also a place for some drug trafficking shady individuals. Some people have been found there without valid papers and they have been deported to wherever they were coming from. It's mostly consisting of an uncountable number of apartment buildings, apartment rooms, but there are floors where there is just these shopping areas. And it is known for the fact that it's one of the cheapest places to live in Hong Kong. We are now introduced to this First story is one of the leading characters, this cop, once again, played by Takeshi Kaneshiro. And what happens here is that he is actually following somebody around this area and he's unable to get to him, yeah? And he bumps into this mysterious woman, which is when he first time sees her. And later they bump in the bar once again. But what do you think about this slow motion-ish technique that is so prevalent in this film. Does it please you visually? It does, yeah. Even though I have to admit that it's kind of a tricky thing to do, start your movie 
immediately with a slow motion tracking shot. It's an element of the film that quite strongly stands out amidst the rest of the film, which is being shot in the regular speed most of the time. So these slow motion shots that happened every now and then, basically in this first story, it is something that pops out from the rest of the film quite strongly. It does. Particularly, I remember the scene where the drug woman is going inside the metro. They didn't have any permits to shoot the film there. But they did it. They got the job done. For me, I don't know if this is purely like an original technique, what we see here. No. But at the same time, I don't mind it being there. How would you compare this effect when... In comparison, if we would see this at normal speed, maybe this kind of gives this a sort of a artistic, like we see several shots, several freezed frames, to give you this artistic paint-like value. It gives it uh, something, some different quality than if you would just plainly roll the film at normal speed. The effect helps to ground these scenes into the pace of the movie itself. In here we are following what essentially is a chase scene. And later on when this effect is used, it is used around chase scenes, around scenes which have violence and this level of threat. And if shot on regular speed, like in a typical movie, the whole scene would be much more dynamic. There would be more aggression in the act of chasing another character throughout the crowd of people and using a slow motion since the rest of the film is quite the slow burn it takes its time to move ahead the slow motion effect in these chase scenes kind of lessers the impact of urgency in the chases in my opinion it does help to count the chase scenes into the rest of the film you're absolutely right, yeah. The level of urgency is taken to the same level. It does help it so that the chase scenes do not come this extremely adrenaline-filled, high-tension moment in something that is otherwise extremely slow-paced movie. Yeah. For example, later on in the film where there is the moment when the woman in the white wig has to use a gun to defend herself from the attackers, would you do that exact same scene without the slow motion effect? It would be kind of a, a normal, not so graphical, but quite aggressive. Having that level of violence and that level of urgency in that scene, it would compare quite oddly to the rest of the film. Perhaps, yeah. It tells the story what is happening but it gives you this certain distance to the action. And that it does. Without the slow motion, this would be slowly moving, extremely emotion-based movie, which all of a sudden has a gunfight in it. There is some certain level of urgency in the moment when uh, the woman with the wig gets the gun out of this locker and then gets ready to shoot the guy. The camera is following her and moderately rapid speed. Interesting thematics in the sense that you have this 
a very aggressive woman, this very violent character, as opposed to the very nice policeman that actually is nice to the point that I wasn't sure in the middle of this first story if he was actually a cop or what. I wouldn't know that if he would not have stated it outright that he is the cop with this badge number. And this is in a contrast to the next story where basically both of them are nice, but once again the other one is the cop. There is some fascination with the cops going on. Uh, there is there is also fascination on how these police characters kind of were with characters from other walks of life. Like here the interaction is essentially between a cop and a career criminal. Noted that at no point does either of the two get to know what the other does. The cop never figures out that the woman in the white wig is involved in drug business. Despite of that, that's the social interaction that is being played here in the first story. And in the second story, it's the interaction between a cop and then some food stall worker. So in that sense, it would be a cop and a civilian. This Fei Wong or Wong Fei, indeed, I'm reminded that she acts in both of these stories. You can see that she's coming out of a shop with the Garfield soft toy. So she's, she's there just for a second. And we are brought back once again to these chase scenes. Now the cop is chasing and punching somebody on a dark alley once again. Is this now part of the drug gang or is this just some random criminal, I guess? My take always was that it, it was just a random criminal. Maybe the person yeah. that the cop was originally chasing in the first scene of the film. So yeah, that, exactly. that chase and this capturing of the fugitive scene at this point, they are both kind of a flashbacks that the cop is going through in his head in some later part of time. Now I noticed that also the second story's cop is in this first story. He's looking over behind a, like a barrier. Is it like a train station or something like that? It's a very quick shot, once again. Straight after Wong is shown with the Garfield. And yes, we've been talking about, outside of the, this recording, about this whole coloring theme of this film. So whenever you see our lead character struggling, having these emotional moments after chase scene, for example, he goes running, running the escalators, running in circles outside. And the scene is displayed in blue lighting. And whenever we get to something more romantic, we get to red lighting. So that's completely understandable. Anyone who would be color correcting a film would take notice that you could use this effect to your advantage, and they do. So in that sense, there is nothing like groundbreaking or earth-shatteringly special in that sense. But yeah, it's nice to note that there is that element to it. It's not flat in its coloring in any way, but if anything would stand out the most in this film, I would say that that would be definitely the uh, soundscape. The soundtrack, I mean um, the music soundtrack, combined with the ambient sound. Yeah, and the soundscape, how it works with the actual actual film and the visuals of the film, even to a point where it's a question on how the sound works with the actual speed of the film. Mm. With the soundtrack combined, for example, with the slow motion shots, 
it kind of gives you this jazz vibe if you get my drift. It's kind of a, like visualizing a jazz song. And that's something that Von Karvai likes to do a lot in his films. He likes to play together a lot with the usage of the film, the visual side and the soundtrack and kind of a play around and see what kind of effects he can get by manipulating the film next to the soundtrack and playing them together. To me, I have to be straight in this podcast as we do. And sometimes not so straight. But anyway, <laughs> um, this thematics or the feeling of this film, what's it trying to aim for? I don't know if it's a realistic soundscape or like you said it's trying to go for something jazzy whatever the heck is the term that you would use for that at times i felt that it's trying to push it even a little bit too much where i was like oh yeah you are definitely aiming for that i get your point but no it's not a problem i would just say that there may be films where it is more a little bit under the surface that it's not so in your face as as it sometimes is here. Not complaining, just stating. To me, on the other hand, uh, the fact that it is so in your face is kind of one of the things that originally got me hooked into Wong Kar Wai's films. Actually, this film is pretty realistic in its visuals, to the point where it's kind of pedestrian in its visuals. When I look at this scene, for example, at the kiosk where the guy is arguing with the seller that why don't you have these uh, pineapple containers that have the 1st of May date because he's obsessed about those. You know, there's nothing that's special about the color or the lighting or... Actually, the picture is quite grainy. As I said, kind of pedestrian. Like you would enter the store and start shooting. I'm not sure how much they are preparing the lighting in these scenes. Maybe that's the point. They don't want to maybe do that because, hey, they want to keep it realistic. Apparently, Wong Kar Wai never actually studied filmmaking. Oh. He, he's a director who learned how to make films through simply loving movies and wanting to make, through experiencing different types of movies, he developed this his own style, something that he would like to see on a screen and trying to achieve that. And not so much of having years of study and having film school and all of this theory and deep learning process behind him. Yeah, if you would compare this to almost any Hollywood production, this would never fly, this look of the film. Because it's so grainy, because it's so down to earth, because it's so normal in places. Yeah, it's there's great camera work and it looks great. But the look that they have here would never fly in a Hollywood studio. It's just, okay, this movie is also old. It's getting a little bit old. It's made in 94. Different visuals. But no, at the same time that this was made, if it were made in Hollywood, it would look completely different in its visuals. And I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say for the better, necessarily. Because if you want to do your own thing, it's not going to happen in Hollywood most of the time. Unless you are... Orson Welles. Yeah, and we can remember how well that went for him in the end. So the name Chunking Express. It's basically, it's a combination of, like you said, the Chunking Mansions. Yeah. And the Midnight Express food stall. Yeah, there you go. 
I think this movie is also filled with a lot of great dialogue. We can get to that later in, in this particular section for it. But there is that a lot of quotes about that kind of uh, are asking the most deepest questions about life and uh, why are we here and that type of existential questions. It's great. I couldn't help but post the movie and list a bunch of them in my notes. There are these certain settings. Both of them are in like restaurants and also fast food restaurants. In the first film, it's there where this policeman is calling all over the places because he happens to be bored or lonely or whatever the case is. Lonely, I would say. So this loneliness is replaced by this drug lordian <laughs> for a second. And then in the second story, you have the other restaurant, which is even more prominent in that one. A lot of parallels. I heard that Wonka Wai was actually writing this movie as he was shooting it. Like he would, at least it was like this, that he would have one scene on the paper and then he would start planning for the next scene after that. I, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I heard the exact same thing, that this was being written as it was being shot. Right, okay. Once again, you know, a dangerous stunt to pull off and something that usually just ends up being quite a disaster. Well, then we basically get to the bar scene. And in this scene, we start to establish the red lighting. It's there. Mr. Cobb is having a pretty rough day already, puking in the toilet and then still coming back to entertain a lady. Doesn't seem to be all that drunk. I, I don't know, maybe that's, you know, 30 tin cans worth of pineapple at work right there. Right you are. Pineapples and alcohol. There was this great quote that can't be left unsaid. Those 30 cans of pineapple had left me feeling queasy, so I went to a bar. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> now that's how you do it. Well, there's no lack of humor here as well, as we can see. Everybody does a stellar job acting-wise, I believe, although it's kind of hard to judge somebody's acting because they are not coming from similar culture at all. But yeah, I get this idea that I'm enjoying this acting. Although it's kind of more comedic, I would say, in this first story, because this actor, Kaneshiro, is being quite obsessed about the May 1st date of the cans and extremely obsessed about turning the woman around to get her to her flat, well, or to just discuss with her, but here he is drunk, of course. The camera is well hidden in this film, in the sense that I don't think they are kind of overplaying with the angles or the visual language to the point where it would take you out of the film, in the sense that you would be aware of the camera. No, quite the opposite, in fact. Seems like this film is quite if not all of it, shot handheld. It could be. I find it quite hard to tell how exactly they shot this film. Something that actually makes this the cinematography here quite hard to analyze is the fact that it has two cinematographers working on it. One being Christopher Doyle, which is Wong Kar Wai, yeah. regular. Yeah, he's an Australian Hong Kong cinematographer. And he's someone that has featured very prominently in Wong Kar Wai's films. And the second cinematographer, I once again do not have any idea how to pronounce this, but Wai Kung Lao, 
who also has a long career behind him. Most notably, I would say, from him would be the Infernal Affairs movies. Basically, the situation in Chunking is that there are two cinematographers, one who became longer by regular and has this very prominent style in his cinematography, working quite alongside with a second cinematographer, and it comes quite hard to actually, at least for me, to say what parts are shot by which cinematographer. Absolutely, and I like this small detail in the flat when finally the cop is able to persuade her to come to her flat and she's falling asleep, and we get this establishing shot of the room when he's removing the high hills. And in the background you see the shot of the window, in the background you also see the TV by the window having this TV test card screen on. And that's always so great, there's something very nightly there, something very... I love the test card screen. Relates to night. It's also nice that he lets the woman sleep throughout the night with her shoes on. And it's only during the morning when he finally actually takes them off because he's so absolutely to avoid swelling in her feet, so... Yeah. (laughs) And he's cleaning these high heels with his tie, which kind of made me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) There is a certain creepy vibe there. Like, I get that he's being a kind-hearted and tries to act nice in the situation. But it kind of ends up going just a tiny bit too far. Yeah, I guess it's just trying to illustrate to you how much he wants to care about this woman. Because he decided himself that the next woman that comes into this bar, or who I meet, will be my target. Yeah, I will fall in love with the next woman who I see in this bar. Yeah. Lucky him that it actually turned out to be the woman with the white wig. And not some 92-year-old grandma. (laughs) But yeah, it ends up so that the pager beeps finally when he least expects it. And is it this woman with the wig who gives the happy birthday wishes to him? Which he actually takes quite in the heart in the end. End of the first segment. He genuinely was impressed. Can sympathize with that. I also always remember the woman who wished me happy birthday. <laughs> okay, tell me more. Who was that? <laughs> but this story ends with the cop being again in the restaurant, or what would be a the more appropriate word for this kind of a place. However, now he finally bumps up to the woman uh, of this joint. Is it actually the same restaurant? It is. As in the second story. Yeah, it is. Right. And the woman that, looking at the cop in the final shot, it's the same actor again as in the second story, right? Yep. Yeah, so this kind of ties these stories together in an interesting fashion. And you could say that, is it even two stories? It kind of is, but now it seems like this is a direct continuation (laughs) from here. It kind of is. The first story has this underlying theme of characters simply bumping to each other. And Mm. so that that act of bumping, it bridges the two stories together, in a sense. And it also kind of uh, 
during the first story, it does highlight how in this cityscape where these characters are living, you can just simply pass by another person who's in some shape or form turns out to be extremely important to someone and you never actually yourself realize the importance of that another person. Yeah, and interestingly, there's no any kind of establishing shot when we switch the stories, at least not straight away. It just simply has this freeze frame, then continues to the second story, which starts with this shot of the cop on the street. So no, like, wider establishing. And yeah, I'm wondering if this character is supposed to be the same character as in the end of the first story, this uh, woman in this restaurant. At least she dresses differently, but she could might as well be the same woman. But then again, is this supposed to even happen in the same location? Not sure about that either. My take was that she is the same woman. Okay. Much like you made the notion of the scene where in the first story, where you see the woman leaving the shop with that giant car field, a bus toy, and that would also be the same woman now working at the food stand, buying the Garfield toy to take it to the second story's cop's apartment, where it actually becomes one of the major elements of the second story. Helping the cop 663 overcome kind of this, his heartache for the breakup between him and his girlfriend. And moving into music. So we have a lot of music here. We have these particular tracks. Dennis Brown, Things in Life. Michael Galasso, Baroque. The Mamas and the Papas, California Dreaming. Then we have Five Wong's Cantonese cover version of Dreams by the Cranberries. And then we have Dinah Washington, What a Difference a Day Made. Henrik, do you like the music of this film? I like it quite a lot. That's yeah. something that I've always liked in Wong Kar Wai's films. I think that much like, for example, Quentin Tarantino, Wong Kar Wai is extremely talented when it comes choosing the compositions into your film. I like that, unlike Quentin Tarantino. I myself am not always the biggest fan of Quentin Tarantino. Is this going to be something that we could argue about finally? Most likely it will be once again something that will pop up between us, I guess, on a later date. I can't wait. What are all these titles that we have in store? Mission Impossible 2, definitely. <laughs> we will, just for, uh, I think nobody's going to defend this one, but Uninvited 1988, we have to cover this film. Yeah, we need to have more civilized discussion in this podcast. There's kind of a cheap optical effect, in my opinion, when the cop is for the first time discussing with this woman in the shop. Because when the cop is coming closer to the ear of this lady to tell him the secret, the woman asks from the cop, what do you like? And then he makes this hand motion to get closer, and the woman gets closer, and we get this optical shot. There's actually a little bit of a cut there that you can see. So the woman is in the background, blurred, and the man is on the foreground. Unfortunately, this didn't look natural to me the first time I saw it. I mean, yes, the woman is supposed to be in the background, like, further away. But somehow, maybe the woman is blurred too much. Kind of gives you the effect that she's supposed to be even further than she would be. 
but in fact it feels like they are too close together. But the woman is blurred and the other one is in focus and it feels off. Unlike in many other times when we have discussed the editing, in here, in chunking, I actually did not have a problem with it, even though I did take notice of the fact. Okay, yeah. It's hard to miss. That it is, but for example, like the one editing choice that we discussed in the Vimie episode, where we both found that the editing goof was actually distracting element. Unlike in there in chunking, even though I did take notice of the editing and it did caught my eye, it did not, however, in any way distract me from the experience of watching the film. Yeah, like, I have to come clean that it kind of takes me out because I noticed that and the kind of the illusion is broken for a split second in that sense. But then again, you know, so you see this all the time. It's just a movie and it's surprising that they would not reshoot that or try to do it with perhaps more care if possible. But yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. God damn, the cops have unhealthy eating habits. Well, you do know that, you know, the stereotype of cops going day to day by simply by 500 donuts, it's not definitely just harmful and unrealistic stereotype. Are you defending the cops in this podcast? Definitely not the cops. <laughs> As a law-abiding citizen myself, how could I not be defending the cops in the podcast? <laughs> Henrik, um... Let's get this off the rails once again. If you don't like that, dear listener, then you can rewind this episode forward, like 35 minutes. Henrik, I have some kind of delusions about society. Henrik, I do not like cops. I do not like authority, even though I went to the army. We're not going to the army in discussion, but um, I have this some kind of a instinct that I want to get out of the circles of the society sometimes. I think that, especially during in today's society, it's quite actually natural. Feeling kind of overburdened by the society and having the dreams of simply going off the grid. Yeah, this constant bombardment of chat windows and Facebooks and Instagrams and... Uh, and just the fact that you are, to an extent, responsible to be always in the reach of contact. Yeah, it's something that kind of uh, became the trend after cell phones or mobile phones became a thing. Actually, my story starts like I was really excited about this technology at first and I was like embracing it at every turn. I wanted to make Skype calls around the whole world and talk with people in Facebook for hours and it is a fantastic technology. It's great. We can make contact with somebody like Mitch Tom from Hong Kong at will, just like that. It makes the world a better place, smaller. But there's this downside, because we can't control ourselves. We can't keep ourselves in check. But is that really the case, though? Rewind back to the 80s, what were people doing? Well, I guess they were in person socializing more, doing kind of the exact same thing in that sense, so... It's not taking away from the intellectual pursuits of, say, reading 300 
50 billion books a year. I think that didn't happen then, and I, th- I don't think it's happening any less in that sense now. Though I would say that the intellectual pursuits have become more easier. Yeah, actually, we have Wikipedia and so on. Yeah, and we have, overall, through internet, we have the constant access to the source of information. Be that books or Wikipedia or, or you know, any kind of a educational platform like Masterclass or Udemy or any of these. Mm-hmm. On the other side, however, we are also in constant bombardment of information these days. And to tie this with the whole cop aspect, yeah, there's a difference. You read a book at home, nobody's looking over your shoulder, but uh, at least most of the time. But on the internet, the rules change. Anyway, back to the movie. Well, we do have a flashback here, actually, with the guy kissing the uh, st- stewardess, I believe at the flat, owned in real life at the time by Christopher Doyle, the cinematographer. She goes on her way, we are indicated, well, I don't know if it's a flashback, we are indicated that something happens, the stewardess comes looking for him in the restaurant once again, he's unable to find him, he doesn't want to be found, the relationship is over. And as everybody who has seen this film then knows that in this envelope that the stewardess gives to the restaurant owner, in the envelope you have the key to the flat, so... Yeah, she's kind of ending the relationship on her behalf, I guess, returning the key to the flat. She does try to connect with the cop later on through the telephone calls, but at that point it is so that the woman from the food stand intervenes the communication and makes sure that the cop never gets her messages. Exactly. So another woman who is working at this restaurant is in fact in love with this policeman and the best way to go about such of an addiction is of course to take the key out of the envelope and go barging and go inside the cop's flat for many days weeks or months or however long that takes for her to come to the flat without the cop even noticing until finally he does yeah it's that loving stalker thing that is at play here absolutely but but overall the point that the film is kind of making is that through this action of intervening with the cop's life, breaking into his apartment and doing all these small things in his apartment, the woman is actually helping the cop to overcome the breakup between him and the stewardess. Mm, yeah, I suppose so. He's just a very untidy person. That is, and he's in very kind of a downer place right after the breakup and something that the woman ends up doing is cleaning the apartment and for example changing the mark in the cop's bathroom to something that is more brighter and more colorful and this way happier mark and all these small things that she keeps doing for god knows how long they eventually kind of a They do break the cops kind of this sad environment that he himself has built inside his own apartment. And by breaking this environment, the woman does in the end end up helping the cop to overcome the breakup. Once again, we can see a lot of parallels actually with this cop. When you compare with the first story, this guy is very lonely calling everyone with the telephone from this restaurant. And here 
he's not calling, but he's talking to the rag at his home. Yeah. It, so yeah, so. <laughs> it's basically there are two different acts, but they kind of both serve the same purpose. But there is that theme of desperately trying to connect with someone or something. The cop two two three does this by basically going through the entire phone book he has from what ends up being pretty much every single female person he has ever met in his life. And the cop 663 tries to achieve the same element by talking to Rax in his own apartment of the inanimate objects. Absolutely, and there's also the sense that these both cops are very likable characters. You can really relate with these characters. Yeah, that they are. It's like there's no bad bone in their body. Well, the woman gets caught in the staircase once to the cop, and then gets caught for the second time inside the flat. And finally the alarm bells are going ding ding ding. He is at least angry to the woman at first, but then he's like, okay, what was it? Like, come on in, welcome, welcome. I like the shot where she's inside the house looking at towards the escalators when he's going to work, making these sounds and he's still confused. Yeah, there's a lot of these nice small touches in face work and acting throughout the film. Absolutely, and when it comes again to this pedestrian quality of the cinematography in the way that it tries to portray realism is, again, when the camera is capturing her inside the flat in one instance and the light is coming very strongly, the backlight is extremely strong, it's leaking through her head, it's so strong, it's overtaking the picture really. So again, something that you would not ever see in a Hollywood production. It's a weird movie, Henrik. There is no structure in a traditional sense. Well, there is the beginning, there is the end, but everything that happens in the middle, well, it's a story. But, as said, it's more about the mood and the atmosphere. Yeah, to me, it's always been kind of a visualization of letting go. And, you know, that moment of sadness that you face during a breakup. Do you know if... Mrs. Coppola was inspired by this film to shoot Lost in Translation. Uh, that's... I can see... Well... Yeah. As far as I know, Coppola has never stated that out loud. But, you know, watching this film, watching Lost in Translation, there is certainly is parallels to be seen. Mm-hmm. And we in this podcast most definitely are not the first ones to actually see those parallels. It is a common notion and common theory that Sofia Coppola was maybe even not in any small extent inspired by chunking when making Lost in Adaptation or Lost in Translation. Yeah, like at this point, of course, there's like millions of movies like this, you know, the realistic ambient, the realistic soundtrack of it all but um this came out in 94 and uh, lost in translation is what 2004 2003 yeah good thing for the cop with the floor that it's made of this material that the entire flat was not destroyed good for him with the water on the floor there again you know i, I don't know with, with the humidity in the air i somehow could believe that what the cop ends up 
which in the end is just a water damage waiting to happen. And I start to notice these small funny connections. Now the Garfield is inside the house. He talks to the Garfield as well. Yeah, it's my take is that it is the exact same Garfield toy from the yeah, first that... story that you see simply by glimpse. Yeah, when watching this now, for this is this was my first time watching this film, preparing for this episode. But on this first viewing, I did not connect these two different stories in that sense. But now that I see all these small little fine details dropped here and there and there, it could go either way. You can definitely see it as a kind of a continuation from the same realm, if you will. Yeah, to me, it always has been a continuation and something that ties, in a way, ties the two stories together. Yeah. <clears throat> and kind of a place off with the theme of these small things and people bumping to each other without actually knowing the importance of the other people and those small events that happened around them. Like the Cop 663, the Garfield toy becomes extremely important later on on his segment. But when you actually see the toy for the first time in the first segment, which happens around the lady in the white wig, the lady in the white wig does notice the toy, does notice the girl buying the toy, but neither one of those are in any sort of importance to the woman in the wig. And later on, that is simply something... That's a small instance that happens around her, something that she bumps into. But later on, as we see in the film, that event and that toy become extremely important to someone else, to the COP 663. But yeah, even the motion of rain is slowed down in this film, around the scene where we see the stewardess coming back to ask for, to look for his boyfriend, ex-boyfriend again. And finally they actually meet, right? Yeah, here it is. At the end lines, he says that it doesn't matter where you want to take me. You can take me wherever you want. Or something of that sort. So, does the relationship continue again? Now that he's over it? Or what exactly happens here? I, I My take always is that it kind of leaves the continuation of the relationship kind of open. Mm, looks like he's not completely over the stewardess. Not completely, I mean he... At all. Did kind of end up waiting for her in the end. And he did keep that boarding pass that she did draw on the napkin. So obviously there was some kind of a deeper emotional connection that stayed with the cop. Yeah, it's like in the first story as well. You know, it ends with the looking deep into the eyes of the restaurant woman. And yeah, same here. We get a glimpse of a hope between the two. It is in the end left very ambiguous if anything comes from that closing shot of the film. Did we find any like particularly psychological or symbolic qualities in this film? Because you would think since the movie doesn't follow like normal traditional storyline then it would be kind of easy to assume that this is uh, psychological and symbolical inside and out but I don't get that either. It depends on how do you want to see or how do you want to define the psychological meaning in this film? Well, there is the psychological fact that it's trying to kind of 
it's depicting this vibe of the city. And like Mitch said in this podcast, he said that it it's greatly captures the vibe of the city. That does, and it does capture the vibe of being heartbroken and being alone. Like that's something that kind of connects all these characters is the fact that in one way or another they are alone in this city. But other than that, I'm not sure if there is more symbolism going on behind this film. Like this is a movie that tries to visualize a feeling. Yeah, tries to visualize the feeling. It's nice to watch, even though I would say that there are pretty shots as well. It's not boring to look at. It's great visual storytelling. But at the same time, it's not overly impressive all the time either. It's just good. It's, it has this certain flow. And it's perhaps the Christopher Doyle's camera here. Kind of this sort of a camera that never stops moving. It's always shaking, having this motion, or it's moving somewhere in that corner or the other. It's keeping the film alive, in a sense. I myself would count quite a lot on Mr. Doyle's camera work. Here in Chunking and in Von Carvai's filmography all together. Like, there is a good reason why these two like to work together from movie to movie. I would say they kind of complete each other. Funny thing is that this kind of a storytelling with the camera, this constantly moving type of camera that is handheld, this is something that has been adopted, I would say, uh, years after this, like by several TV series. If you look at something like Friends, well, Friends, it still has this traditional way with the camera. It's still... But you look at something more modern, say, I can think of Glee, it definitely has this type of storytelling with the camera. It has become very mainstream, in TV at least, is my point. It has. At the same time, it's also a technique that really kind of needs a right kind of story to be used in. If you use it in wrong kind of story or wrong context, it kind of loses all of its effect and even starts looking kind of a wonky at worst. I do like the handheld style a lot. For example, a TV series like The Shield, which also used the handheld a lot. Yeah, there are extremely bad examples about this as well. We also liked Halloween, but there it was mostly used for the budget constraints, this um, Panaglide camera at the time. But it definitely gives it a different visual appeal in a good way. But, Enric, so this movie came out in 94. Uh, the film began a limited theatrical run in 96, thanks to Quentin Tarantino. Region 1 DVD was released in the US region. The film earned 7 million Hong Kong dollars at the time. In the USA, it was during its opening time on four screens, grossing 32,000 US dollars. Then it played at 20 theaters, and at its best, yeah, then it crossed, yeah, basically 600,000 US dollars. When it comes to reviews, we have also Roger Ebert, who was eager to comment on this film. This time, fear not, dear listeners, I basically agree with Roger Ebert's take. He was favorable, but wasn't praising it all the way to the moon either. He took a pretty grounded look at it. Basically, the uh, idea in his review is that you enjoy this film because of 
what you know about film, as in the sense of filmmaking, I believe, and not because of what it knows about life. Yeah, James Berardinelli gave it three and a half stars out of four, was favorable as well, but on the whole it was also quite a lot praise to the moon. In the Western world, got a lot of awards and nominations. In Stockholm, Fai Wong won the Best Actress Prize. It got the Best Picture in Hong Kong Film Awards in 95. Best Director, Best Actor, Best Editing, Best, 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 Best. Henrik, how was the pacing of this film? I myself did not have a problem with the pacing. I had enjoyment out of the pacing, myself. Yeah, it was very enjoyable. Yeah. The thing with Chunking is that a lot of times people bring this film up as something that is must-see and as something that you most definitely should watch from Mongarvai. And with that notion, I'm a bit hesitant myself. I think that if you are new to Mongarvai's films, starting with something from his later filmography, like for example 2046, would mm. perhaps be a better choice, since it's a film that achieves the same kind of emotional height as does Chunking, and has the same connection between the visuals and the music, and has all this flavor in its filmography, but on also on top of that, I think that 2046 has more elements going on story-wise. Definitely, definitely. I would say that this are 2046 is way more complicated movie in the sense that it has more layering, a lot of thought out dialogue, and in that sense, it could be seen as even a quite a heavy film compared to this one, where you don't really need to think anything about anything. But yeah, if you want to jump into the like more traditional way of storytelling in the sense, then no, maybe watch something like 2046 as your first one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you are new to Wonkarvai's films, I would say that that's a better entry point. So, Henrik, did we fuck up the entry point because we chose this film? We, perhaps, in a way, we did fuck up entry here. (laughs) It wouldn't kind of be the first time in this podcast, I mean. We did go to Terminator 2, Completely skipping past Terminator 1 and... But there was a particular reason There, there was a particular I reason for that. that. Yeah. I give you that much. Yeah. Well, be it as it may. <laughs> it's uh, one of the most highlighted films from him and brought to the map by Quentin Tarantino. The man would not be very well known without Tarantino's efforts. That is, it's easy when you look at how Bonkarvai makes his film. Like how he builds the movie. And if anything relating to his education or lack thereof actually holds water, it's kind of easy to see why Quentin of all directors would be so taken by and be so enthusiastic about Wonkarvai. Then again, watching any films, for example this film, kind of fuels the interest even further to directors, in this case Wonkarvai, and hopefully we'll be able to watch some other flicks of his later on. Yeah, the film has been released on DVD and Blu-ray. Unfortunately, it looks like the film has been out of print for a long time. I do not know the current situation. 
In my situation I was perfectly able to get a copy of this film, but if you happen to hit a brick wall trying to get your hands on this film prior to listening to this incredible podcast episode, goodness, then too bad for you. Yeah, the film had its moment in Finland as a DVD release. Unfortunately, that was years ago and I have not seen this film resurface or basically any of Bunker Weiss films resurface in DVD market after that. So you had that one specific moment in time in Finland to get Bunker Weiss films as a DVDs. And if you missed that moment, and then I'm afraid that you might just be out of your luck. Yeah, shit out of luck. But I have to come clean in this podcast as well about the fact that I have already noticed that out of these 20 international films that we are going to uh, cover in during the Lord's Year 2019, I have already noticed that one of those films is so goddamn completely and utterly out of print that it's absolutely amazing. I cannot find it anywhere. I can find it as a DVD and Blu-ray, yes, but without any kind of subtitles. On some small boutiques in some unnamed Asian film stores. But it's really funny, because I have the DVD for this particular movie, and there was this time when it was quite widely available in Finland. The movie in question is, is the blue light, so if you're unable to get this movie, I understand. But if you're super hardcore, you will find a way to watch it with English or whatever, even Finnish subtitles. But yeah, it's not a challenge for nothing. If I remember correctly, I also only have the VHS release. You own the VHS for this? Nice. Yep. I thought this was one of the films that... Video games. No, there are no Chunking Express video games, although I would highly like to see one, just out of curiosity. Hi, I'm back. <laughs> hey, Mitch. <laughs> Let's get to the quickies. Favorite performance. So, Mitch, what is your favorite performance of this film? What's your favorite actor here? Well, I really like the two characters. Well, actually, the four main characters from two stories. I love them all. I feel like I won't like particularly like one because they are a complex they need to have the relationship. So I would say four of the main characters are doing brilliantly well. Yeah, yeah, hard to pick one. It's kind of a tie here between Faye and Leung. And if I would have to pick between the two, I guess I would go with Faye, simply for the fact that Leung is more easily available throughout Wonkarwai's filmography and something that it's easy to find films with Leung's performance but Bay is more rare in that sense so I guess as my favorite I take Fei. Also in the first story Takeshi Kaneshiro was shining with a range of emotions going from anger in the shop to being in love in the bar and struggling with assailants and going, thinking about all his experiences at the running track. And I did get a favorable image of him as an actor, so I'll just say Takeshi Kaneshiro for this one. 
Well, do you have any favorite scene? Um, yes. My favorite scene is in the second story, like when the girl is secretly go to the Leung's uh, flat and how she doing a lot of little, little thing for Leung. And then she has put on a cloth so that she won't leave any fingerprint on the flat. I feel like this is a very sweet and, how to say, a details of the film. Like, because of the glow, and that's in pink, shocking pink color, it makes the visual very, you know, bright. But you know the why, the reason she got the glow is she want to hide the fingerprint. So I feel like in the film, the visual impact is quite big at that scene. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of play with the colors. I guess it would be the in the first story, the cop two two three at the food store going through the teens. Yeah. For me, perhaps I would have picked that as well. But if I would go with something else, just might be the scene with the weak woman in the bar because of the interesting tension between the two. Funny how we're actually pointing out to a lot of elements that we like in the first story, because generally I have gotten the idea that the second story is more liked out of these two. What's your take? What's your favorite story? From these two, I would go with the second one. Me as well, yeah, still. The first one is a rather kind of a cold story at the end. It gets a warm end, but there's more love to be seen in this second story. That it is. The first one still in the end. It has more a downer ending in the sense that both of the characters end up going on different directions with no easy ways to communicate between each other ever again. And it ends up with this, well, not as downbeat as in the beginning of the story, but still a bit downbeat feeling as the cop 223 kind of admits that he will never meet the woman in the white wig ever again and decides to remember her forever. So there is that theme that the connection that they fail to establish in the end. And that's that's something that is opposite to how the second story ends, where there is still kind of given a hint that the two characters in that story might still be able to form and uphold the connection between themselves. <laughs> and uh, because we come from the horror movies, our first <laughs> episodes are just pure horror Halloween films. So we just refuse to get rid of this one genre in our quick category. So what's your favorite kill of this film? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, well, there's two kill in the first story. And it's very blunt. I remember yeah. there's a scene, the girl, I think there's a, a white guy from the bar, the boss of the bar, he just walked out, and then he is, like, taking care of some kitty in the street side. Right. And when just a stutter, and then there's gun with the woman. Yeah. And then just kill him. Very shocking. And I feel like it is a very surprising scene. That's my favorite as well. Yeah, it was oh. great visuals in this scene. Yeah. And you know, this guy uses the blue color every time when there's something sad happening. And, well, it's basic color understanding. But it's nice to see. It's blue when something is going dark. And 
is very red when something is very happy or romantic. I have to actually steal Mitch's answer here and also go with the killing of the... I don't know if he's the boss of this... Buffoon. Yeah. So we all picked that as the favorite one. Okay. Favorite quote. I would pick from the first story. The cop talking to his dog. Or the narration on that moment. With they say a dog is man's best friend. So why does mine refuse to share my sorrow <laughs> with me? I like that. And that's the one line that I did not write down. But I enjoyed it as well. I would say... Swordfish expires, meat expires, even plastic wrap expires. I'm starting to wonder, is there anything in this world that doesn't? So there's your existential quote. Henrik, do you like pineapples? Not so much that I would actually eat 30 things of them straight. If you would, how would you take it? I guess with extremely a lot of booze. <laughs> like that. <laughs> You already see the pepper and God knows what ketchup and chili sauce being tried to apply here on the film and none of that actually works. Pineapple with mustard. For me, yes, I do like them. Maybe I would prefer to have a little bit more distance to the expiry date. But other than that, what's your first image that comes to mind from this film when you now think about it on the whole? Uh-huh. Well, I feel like because the city the film is describing or illustrating is quite similar to the reality, yet there's some space is freezing. So I feel like the director really captured the beauty of Hong Kong, that kind mm. of the color tone, especially, and the space. He chose the building, Chongqing building, which is very, very complicated. But other scene, because I live in Hong Kong, so I can capture which street the director is using, yeah? So that yeah. area is uh, really unique, or it is a little kind of old district in Hong Kong. So you will see there's elevators and those kind of building is quite old, very packed. But inside those buildings, the room, the spacing inside the room is quite reflecting Hong Kong. And especially the color tone. The whole film is using the color tone is the old Hong Kong. I think it is like beautilized. The beauty lies Hong Kong. <laughs> I must ask you that, uh, is it true that in Hong Kongese buildings there's often no fourth floor at all? <laughs> oh, oh, I know what you mean. Yes, yes, yes. You okay. Mean, like the building with <laughs> yeah. uh, the fourth yes. floor. Yeah. Oh, yes, because of the number. Four in Chinese is the pronunciation is similar to death. Right. Yeah. Bad luck. So building uh, will skip this floor. To me, it would be the first, the opening scene, the slow-mo tracking shot of the woman in the blonde wig when she's... Or not necessarily that. I would say it's it's a later slow-mo. I guess the scene where the, where the woman in the white wig is being hunted by the drug bosses goons throughout the city and she has to escape them. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what my brain would kind of look for if I would take a break from this movie what would be the first frame that I would access in my head but it's something along the lines of the restaurant woman in the cop's flat next to the window doing noises to the cop who is on the escalators or then it's the shot where the cop from the first story is taking 
the high heels from the uh, drug character or then it's the slow motions in the beginning of the film and definitely the shop from the second story would be something that I might access as well so I don't know maybe at the end of the day the shot of removing the high heels is there anything that took you out of this film anything stupid that made you look at your clock uh, basically no I'm yeah. quite into this movie no there was not that moment instead there was there were a lot of moments that drew me in to the film mm. yeah nothing took me out either uh, yeah nothing took me out what pulled you in then um I think it is the as I mentioned like how real and how unreal yeah. he described of Hong Kong well quite a lot of moments the the slow-mo sequences were some uh were one thing many many of the scenes with Faye and the uh, cop 333 uh, uh, kind of a, those joint see, scenes with them and uh, also the the bar scene in, in the in the first story yeah the moments when when I was the most inside the realm of this film is perhaps yeah the bar scene from the second story I would say when the woman is trying to avoid the cop from being seen in the apartment a little bit of attention amidst the jazz Mitch this is the scissors of sacrilege section you now have the kitchen knives so you're free to cut whatever section from this film that you want is there anything that you would cut or alter or change hmm difficult question let me think <laughs> <laughs> um for me i feel like the second story is quite smooth so hmm. if you need to cut something i will go back to the first story i'm thinking the beginnings the woman is having some argument with the south asian guys right i mean like i still don't understand why the woman is going to the airport right and then those people dump her in the airport i mean like if you cut out this part i mean of course this part is to trigger the reason why the girl is so desperately the reason of her anger but seems like putting too much effort on describing that part so if you need to cut something i will shorten that part okay scissors henrik would you cut something no i would leave the film as it is yeah same here mitch would you recommend Junking express oh definitely i mean like me as a hong kong local i feel like oh i well you know actually i heard for this film for years and many people told me oh this is a good film you should watch but somehow I don't have a you know motivation to watch. And now I watch it, I feel like it is really, for me, I, I really feel like it is something belongs to the city and very high quality, very nice. And that kind of visual language is very contemporary because yeah. it is not very clear of what the whole film or the relationship between the two stories is not that clear. And because of this, uncertainty it brings up a, a sense of contemporary and the aesthetics is very nice so i feel like as a hong kong people you must watch it <laughs> i definitely enjoy the whole vibe of the film in general and i believe i have a hunch that if i would ever come to hong kong finally someday 
I would even appreciate the vibe more because I would know what they're trying to capture here. Definitely, please. Yeah, definitely will come whenever I can. Henrik, <laughs> would you recommend this film? I would. And overall, I would recommend Wonkarwise Body of Work. Not necessarily. Maybe not the latest two long features from him. That being the Grandmaster and his entry film in the US, My Blueberry Nights, which both I felt were not bad, but kind of a typical filmmaking. But overall, yeah, I would basically recommend anything from Wonkarwai, this film included. Okay, yeah, I would recommend Chongqing Express as well for all the aforementioned reasons, particularly. Yeah, as we discussed, we like the style of the slow motion, we like the kind of realisticity of the film on the whole. Perhaps we can also, like, as we discussed, we do find parallels, inspiration in Lost in Translation, although Lost in Translation, for example, is a more meditative in its quality than this one here, I would say. I wouldn't say Junking Express is meditative, but the vibe is there in any case. Overpronounced as it is, sometimes. It's not a problem, nothing that would ever break the boat. So, a flying recommendation from here as well. Have you eaten caterpillars? I've tried them, would not recommend. I thought that it tasted something like chips. No. At least when it's roasted. <laughs> I, I don't know about roasted, I, I tried raw and I can say that they Ooh. do not taste like chips or like chicken. Uh, yeah. That would be a new experience to me as well. Why did I ask this? No fucking reason. Carrying on. So, Henrik. That was Junking Express. Any closing thoughts? Before I kill this podcast. Go ahead. For now. Until next week. But, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us <laughs> for this episode. Thank you for and inviting me too. I mean, for- I enjoy and... Well... Because of these projects, like I motivate myself to watch this movie. So I need to say thank you too. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. Henrik, what's our next film? If the schedule still holds up, yeah. I guess we are continuing with the Asian movies and shifting our focus to Korea. So would that make it Shiri, our next case? I hope so. Really enjoy this film. Uh, I believe we both do. I'm bit on the defense here myself, simply because once again we would unfortunately end up into politically loaded waters. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. But looking forward to that, we will talk about it very soon. Thank you for our listeners as well for listening, and you can naturally find us in the deepest levels of hell in Facebook, and also Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Anything to add, or should we get out of this laboratory once again? I guess we should just get out while we still can. Thank you, and very nice catch up with you, Carrie, and nice meeting you, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> nice meeting you also. Hopefully we get you back here on the podcast on some later episode. Yeah, it would be great. Yes, yes, yes. Please invite me. I mean, I enjoy doing these kind of things. <laughs> we'll definitely do that. I will meet you guys again. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye. Bye bye.
anything about special effects? No. Additional trivia? No. Lighting? No. Set? No. Anything? No. Olin sydänjuoreni myötä yllättynyt siitä, että joku on tykännyt podcastista näinkin paljon. Yeah, the film has been... Has... Kiitos.